Welcome. I'm Elia Einhorn, co-curator of Inside Out, a collaboration between Pitchfork and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago that explores new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand, sell more stuff. Chancellor Bennett, AKA Chance the Rapper, is one of the most exciting artists making music right now. A cultural influencer, thought leader, and global star, he's won three Grammys, hosted Saturday Night Live, and collaborated with everyone from Kanye West to Justin Bieber. And he's only 24 years old. Since the release of his first mixtape, 10 Day, in 2012, through his breakthrough Acid Rap in 2013 and Landmark Coloring Book in 2016, Chance has upended popular music industry norms by refusing to sign to a record label and always giving his music away for free. But even as he's become more and more successful, Chance has remained strongly grounded in his hometown of Chicago. He donated a million dollars and raised even more for the Chicago public school system through his philanthropic organization, Social Works, and went head to head with the governor of Illinois over budget cuts for public schools. He sits on the board of the DuSable Museum of African-American History. He's given away book bags to kids and winter coats to the homeless. His lyrics often pay homage to the South Side where he grew up. So it was an honor to host an evening with Chance at Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art in conversation with Pitchfork contributor Adrian Samuels Gibbs. The day after the event took place, Chance tweeted that it was, quote, probably my best interview. Take a listen. Good evening. Thanks for being Good here. Thank you. Thank and you for being here. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, this is exciting. So, so let's let's just get let's just get straight to it. Here is the the top question of the day because we all know all about you. You're on Twitter. You work with the Obamas. You you'll be at Harold's. You're buying out movie theaters. You're helping the kids. You're down. You're you're protesting. You're bringing people to vote, um, and you're winning Grammys. How exactly do you set these intentions? Do you just wait? Do you just, January 1st, and this is my year. This is what I'm going to do. Week to week, day to day. Is this super intentional? How is it all working? Uh, that's a great question. I, well, my team would probably tell you best. Like, there's not a lot of time that I allow between the inception of an idea and the execution. Uh, we rush a lot of stuff, but we dream really ambitiously and I work with a large, you know, group of, of awesome people, mostly from Chicago, but from all over the country and all over the world. And, uh, you know, I come up with, with crazy ideas and, or young people that work with me come up with crazy ideas and then we set an ambitious date to get it done by and then eventually it gets done. And just as simple as that. Yeah. It doesn't always get done on the execution <laughs> date that we set. It doesn't work like that. But we, we you know... We try and uh, we try not to tell ourselves no too much, um, or that won't work, or or finding you know ways to poke holes in a theory. We just say it would be dope if we did this, and then we try and make it happen. It would be dope if we did this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so tell me about uh, Slice. It would be dope if yeah if you starred in this movie and it came out. So when? What? How? So yeah, so Slice is uh Slice is a film that one of my best friends, this guy, Austin Vesley, he uh 
directed all my videos from my 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 first video um that uh, that was on 10 day uh, it was called fuck you time about uh up to juice and to uh angels and sunday candy he's but he's one of my main collaborators one of the people when i didn't you know have enough money to get on the train and shit like this was one of my guys and he's always been uh an amazing writer and a and a full-blown filmmaker but he worked with me and met me halfway on music videos but uh yeah he had this this idea for this horror film this horror comedy about a pizza delivery uh massacre that's going on and there's all these awesome people in it Hannibal Burris um I don't know why I just stopped on Hannibal Burris, but yeah, I just re- I was I was thinking as I was talking, I don't know how much I can talk about the movie, but it's my guy's movie. Uh, he he knows I love to act. I know he loves and is amazing uh, at writing. So yeah, we came together on it and it's done. I don't know when it's coming out, or maybe I do know when it's coming out, and I can't tell you, but uh, <laughs> I I can't wait to see it. Okay, I can't wait to see it. I'm sure everybody would agree. So then the next thing I wonder, I just want to talk a little bit about your process of writing music because you do such a great job of incorporating the Chicago canon into everything that you do. I feel it, you know, Jukin, Jackin, and, and, and Heralds and all those visceral things that are so Chicago. You use them and you embrace them. How do you know when you're writing something, though, that it's going to resonate with us in that way? I don't. I don't. I'm so uh, critical of my own work when I'm when I'm working on it and uh, that kind of... So for a long time, my, my process was I would uh, be, you know, I'd work on something for hours, but more than likely days and, and weeks and months at a time to, to, to try and get, you know, a dope product off of it. And usually somebody would send me a beat and I would feel it, you know, just to get down to the nitty gritty, I like type my raps. I know there's niggas that write their raps down on paper. I don't know. I used to type my raps, but I would attack. Uh, I'd attack it by like trying to figure out a tone or a theme first, and uh, sometimes before that, I try and figure out the perspective. Um, you know, who I'm talking to, the listener or myself, or um, who I'm talking about, or. You know, I, I try and figure out perspective and theme first and then uh, and then eventually the rhythm of it, like, and kind of freestyle with it and then eventually spend hours and hours trying to write one verse. And uh, in between all of those processes, it allows so much time to be critical of yourself and be like, this this shit sucks. This isn't, this isn't going to work. Nobody's going to understand. You know, but eventually I started working with... Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in in Georgia and Atlanta and working with some artists that are really close friends of mine, Donald Glover, Quavo, and one of my biggest influences right now is Young Thug. He's um, really masterful in, in terms of he, he engineers himself. He's, uh, you know, he has all these crazy, like he's just, he's super dope and I don't want to give away all the secrets, but he showed me a lot of stuff and one of the things that, has helped me a lot, you know, later in my career towards the end, end of coloring book and the, all the stuff I'm working on now is uh, is a process called punch cutting. And um, you basically just, instead of using a pen and, and trying to, you know, 
write an entire piece and then attack it on the mic separately and hope that all the inflections and rhythms that you had in mind when you wrote it are still there, you you write it by recording and you kind of go line by line and you, you know, it's hard to explain. I don't know if, how many people use Pro Tools and Ableton and shit, but it's it's a much easier, <laughs> much cleaner, much faster process. And to answer your question, I punch cut. That's my process, I guess. Ooh. Well, see, I like that. That's the process. Now, how did the process change? Is it the same process now that it was? Well, obviously it's different, but like, you know, 10 Day, which was just revolutionary, I think. And then, and then you move up to color books. So, so I mean, when how I was 17, this... I didn't know it was that good. Thank you. Well, no, that's what I mean. It's... I'm still here. So, the, so for chance four, <laughs> <laughs> for chance four, are we, are we done with the punch cutting? Uh, no, I'm, I'm still punch cutting. I, I don't know. I'm, it's like, there's, the, so like for a long time, my biggest goals when I was, when I was 13, before that, when I was, when I was 10 and 11 years old, I loved, my, my favorite people in the world were like, MC Hammer, <laughs> Kanye West, uh, yeah, you could clap for Kanye West. He's not here, but he's <laughs> he's still Kanye. Uh, Dave Chappelle. Um, and I, w- I wanted to be just like them, and I've and I've and I've you know uh, adored them and studied them, and I wanted my path to look a lot like theirs, and I've and I've mapped it out over this long period of time, and I had seen. Uh, I'd seen Dave Chappelle walk away from a deal, you know, in the most powerful uh, way and and with so much integrity and so much of a story behind it. And it wasn't just walking away from a deal. It was, it was, you know, being in control. And I wanted that for myself and I didn't know in what capacity. And Kanye, I'd just seen him like work with all these artists and, and not just on a rapping, you know, but like fully composing and putting together artists and creating collaborations and creating all these things. And I knew I wanted to do that and I didn't know in what capacity. And the same thing with, with, uh, with MC Hammer. I had seen him. He was, uh, I think he was the first rapper ever on SNL. You could fact check that. I might be wrong. But I'm pretty sure he was the first rapper on SNL. And he didn't just perform. He hosted and he performed. And I remember that was like a big goal. And over time, you like put all these different things in place to try and reach these goals and you think about it in the beginning when it's on paper as like this this big board with your time the timeline of your life stretching across it and it's like I'll eventually get that when I'm X amount of years old but when you're working on it um, in the capacity that me and my team were working on it it comes much faster and you know the opportunity to get a deal comes faster than you think it does and you say no and then you're and then that shit and then it's over it's like okay well that shit's already over now i'm dave Chappelle level (laughs) (laughs) and then kanye you know and then you you know you get a chance to work on to to produce a project with your best friends and work with all these different collaborators and and play snl and play the grammys and and then it's done it's just like all you know all these things that you work on and you and you plan on you really strategize and i i Pretty sure everybody strategizes on different points in their life. And then you, but you get that goal and then it's done. And your, uh, 
not your opinion on success, but just the definition of success or what details it becomes different over time. And I'm obviously not done rapping. It's, it's one of my favorite, you know, ways to express myself. But I feel like there was, there was space between all my projects because there was a different kind of uh, paradigm shift in my life at each point. And like, you know, I had been making mixtapes before 10 Day. I, had, I made four mixtapes when I was in high school, like before I graduated, before 10 Day. And 10 Day was just like, there were a lot of things in my life that were coming together to make that thing happen. It wasn't just the suspension. It was a lot of things in my personal life. And with Acid Rap, like there was like a year's time where I was working on little songs that just kind of went away because there was something that was happening with Acid Rap. And then the same thing, I waited three years between Acid Rap and Color and Book and, you know, you just got to wait till it comes to you. And that's why I think it's important that artists have a certain control on when they, on when they release their stuff and, and not just when they release their stuff, but how often they work on it and when they, and when they choose to work on their music, it, it can't be based on, you know, schedules and, and other people's albums releasing and, you know, the best time to sell an album. It has to be like, it has to, it has to work for you. It has to mean something for you. And I don't know. That was another long answer. I'm going to try and shorten them it. up now. I'm sitting here learning. I'm, I'm learning. It's all about intentionality. Uh, so you did mention Donald Glover. And he did say that unless you all came out with a mixtape, a bunch of 14-year-olds would be beating him down. So what is the status of said uh, collaboration? Uh... <laughs> I don't know. I've been, getting the, I, I've been getting this question for so long. And the truth is, me and Donald perpetuated this story of a mixtape for a long time without ever working on it or ever even looking at each other and saying we should do a mixtape. It was just, you know, pushed on us. But we eventually, you know, I'm, I'm going to say we did link up in Atlanta not that long ago and started working on some tracks. And they're amazing. I can't, you know, he's, they're, they're fire. They're going to work. They're going to, they're, they're going to, they're going to, touch people and uh but it, it's I think it's the same thing with him and like he's Donald's 10 years older than me and I met him when I was 18 and I think he had just come off of filming his first uh special weirdo and then he completely flipped and was like I'm about to go on tour as Childish Gambino and sold out venues all over the all over the country and brought me along and uh I think he's always had such a cool, firm grasp on who he wants to be, when he wants to be that, and also still being all of those things at the same time. And uh, I don't know how personal I can get, but I'll say I don't think this is super personal. personal. We're, we're linking up. like So we get good time together. Like this is somebody that's like a real, you know, person in my life, like a real friend of mine, somebody that I talk to about a lot of different stuff. And don't always, you know, we don't, I love Atlanta. I think it's one of the greatest things anybody ever made. And sometimes I forget that my friend made it because it's so separate from like my actual relationship with him. And so like we're linking up next week to go. I'm not going to say where we're going, but we're going, we're going somewhere <laughs> to go kick it family style, some cool stuff. And we haven't talked at all about recording. And I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a cool relationship because I'm younger and I'm, you know, I don't have a TV show or a bunch of like things that I'm filming that I'm like worried about at the same time as music. But, you know, we both have kids and we, and I, and I respect his time. And I think he also respects my time. And so we don't 
talk about it often, but we have some music. I don't know. I'm just trying to give you the realest answer. Okay. The realest answer is I don't, I don't know when it's coming out. I don't know when it's getting worked on, but there's something there to start off with. I don't know. Okay, I'll take that for an answer. Sounds good. So I, I want to switch over to social works and switch over to all the people that you've been helping, all the kids you've been helping, and the adults, frankly. You have the homeless. You make, you know, collected money for Coach for Homeless and, of course, Chicago Public Schools and the recent school closure, which was so uh, tragic. Um, Super whack. Yeah. Just, you know. One of those things. You know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are asking you for help. A lot of people are giving you their moral budgets. How are you determining uh, who you're going to help? What is your process for figuring out who to help first, who to help second, and who to help now? That's a great question. Uh, I guess it just it comes to you when you have the opportunity. I, I, don't, I, I don't think there was like a grandiose plan to be like, all right, we're going to go save the kids. You know, it doesn't come. It doesn't come to you like that. I had an opportunity through a tour that I was working on to donate some money, that like a, an excess of money that between me and the venues and the promoters had come across to donate a million dollars in uh, processing ticket fees um, to anybody. Bless you. <laughs> I wanted to know if there was, you know, if you guys were kind. Uh, thank you. Uh, but we, we came across excess money, basically. And there were all these ideas um, to donate it to different organizations. Um, I'm not going to list them because then it sounds like I'm saying this is more important. But the, there are all these different places that the money could go. And I knew that we were in, that, uh, in the budget crisis and there were so many different important city functions that weren't being properly funded. And, and, and I figured that I could, you know, put something in the game in the city that would help. But I think the, the money thing wasn't as important as all the, all the waves that it made, you know, kind of dipping into that. I got to see how CPS functions. I got to learn so much stuff, how we were the only district in the state that doesn't have an elected school board, you know. I got to see how different... Uh, the facilities on, on the south and west sides of the city are from the ones on the north side. I got to see, you know, just to really, you know, connect with these principals and find out how they, you know, they're really like the CEOs of their schools or the CFOs. They're like, like they're working with tiny budgets and finding out in the middle of the school year that their budgets are getting slashed in half and trying to figure out how to pay all their teachers, you know. And, and how their schools are going to have supplies and, and, and also being hung out to dry when things don't, you know, work out. But I, I think, like, there's always, there's always somebody that needs help, right? And I, uh, I was lucky enough to get involved with the school kids at CPS. And, and um, yeah, I think, never mind. So basically what I'm saying is, is there's a lot of people that are in need, a lot of people that could use uh, help and... You know, there's there's no like list of priority when when we're going to help people. We wait for the opportunities. Anybody that you know contacts uh, the social works team uh, via the website socialworkshy.com. We we answer all emails and we try and we. I think more importantly than our funds, we've dispatched an amazing like group of of volunteers that that are just readily available. And there's so many projects that they've worked on. Um, 
I just want to shout them out. The social works team and the social works volunteers have been all over the city, you know, helping to build shelters, helping to uh, pass out coats and, and food and clothing and information on shelters during uh, during the winter months. And just like a lot of dope stuff. And I try and be there as often as I can. I'm not there all the time, but, you know, it's very humanizing and, and also gives me kind of a sense of, of mortality when I, when I go out and, and work on these projects with, with everybody. And I'm, you know, actually in the city, you know, working hand to hand with people who are inside the schools. I don't know. I, I went around asking for money for a long time. That was like my job. Like at one point we were, we couldn't get, you know, CPS the extra money. My job at, for a second became to, you know, go door to door to companies, try to like get money for CPS. But in that same time, number one, I learned how much more important my time was. You know, not always, but how much more beneficial my time and my actual hands could be um, at these different facilities than, than money. And then I also, you know, got to stop focusing so much on the funding and start kind of looking on the spending. How CPS, how Rahm Emanuel spends money in the city and where they spend it and who, if anyone, is held accountable when when funds are misused or when people, you know, or or what schools get closed. And I kind of went hard for CPS for a long time and kind of doing that work in the schools, it got me closer to the students and the faculty and the schools and the teachers and and kind of allowed me to step back and understand the difference between CPS, the students, the teachers, the faculty, and CPS, basically the business. I was like, never mind, then I did it anyway. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Mm. Well, I know they appreciate it. I talked to a bunch of principals who just appreciate being thought of, let alone being gifted enough money to run an arts program or anything like that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we are sitting here in a museum, so I am curious. Uh, are, who do you collect? Do you collect anybody, anywhere, any kind of art? Um, yeah, let's keep it a thousand. In my house, I got, I got, a, yeah, <laughs> I got, a, I got quite a few Hebrew Brantleys, some okay. pretty special Hebrew Brantleys. Yes. Uh, yep. Um, I have, uh. I actually got a really, really cool gift just literally like two days ago. My my best friend and my manager, Pat Corcoran, good dude. He got me for my birthday a, I think it's like 72 or 73, but an original Michael Jackson drawing. I don't know how many of you guys know Michael Jackson used to draw and paint, but he did. And I got a piece that he made that I just put in my house. So I collect Michael Jackson and Hebrew Brantley is basically <laughs> what I'm saying. Well, you know, I'd say that's not bad. That's not bad. Not at all. So uh, tell me about uh, the source, though. The source. You're doing all this work. You're doing all this good work. And the blessings keep falling in your lap. What's the source? Uh, well, I guess the easiest answer is God. Uh, and... Yeah, man. 
it's crazy because I could feel myself infuriating people by saying that. Not in this present moment. I'm sure you guys aren't burning at all, but I'm saying, like, <laughs> this will be recycled. This is, like, a video on demand piece. So, you know, there's people in comment sections right now. Like, <laughs> Don't tell me what to believe! <laughs> it's God, yo. I'm sorry, yo. It's working out great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, but favor and mercy, straight up, all the way. What can I say? Mm. You know what it is. I've heard of such. <laughs> I have heard of such. So, uh, you, you, you know, you did talk about Kanye. And we hear Kanye has some music coming. Out of curiosity. <laughs> would you happen to be working with him on anything? Uh, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I don't know. No, I've, I mean, and if the, the real, here's the best way to answer the question. I don't know what Kanye is going to do next. And I don't think anybody, even like his engineers, you know, his family, I don't think anybody knows what's coming next. Okay. Okay. Overstood. So, we talked about Chicago Public High Schools. I'd love to talk about Orr. I'd love to talk about the basketball team, the documentary, Shot in the Dark. Shot in the Dark, yeah. Um, it was, I know y'all saw it, it was everything. So, and this is coming from a Morgan Park High School grad, so I'm rooting for Orr. And uh, how did you come to that project? What made you sign on? Uh, the project was brought to me... Uh, it was actually, it was weird. It was by a few different people. So one, uh, Dan Poneman, he's a producer on the, on the project, um, a, uh, a, a scout. I know him for, for, for many years. Uh, he's, he's been working in high schools forever, and he basically showed me an amazing movie that was already fully produced and filmed and basically contracted out for the most part, I think, and asked me to work on it and, or asked me to attach my name to it. And I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> this movie's great. That's the thing about EPing. A lot of the time, it means that you just had something fall in your lap, um, which goes back to my last answer. Uh, it's just working out for me. I don't know. I had nothing to do with that project. I didn't touch a camera. I didn't tell anybody to stand in place. It was just, it came to me and, and, uh, you know, I think it it really spoke to me and and how it how it really displayed like not Chicago culture because when people try and show Chicago culture in a uh, and show you black people, they show you literally like the the worst stories and the worst the worst telling of it. It's even like corny and how they pitch it to you. You know, it's not even cool. And this movie was like authentic, like. West Side fees, like like parties outside on the block, and like you know, like the dialect. The ever, there's so there's such a big difference that we recognize in Chicago between South Side and West Side culture. Early, you know, from my generation, it's like it's a big difference, and it's not like anybody's at odds, but it's like you either from out south or you from out west. And this movie like really gave that its own air to breathe, and I just thought it was 
perfect timing with the the 90 plus million dollar cop academy they're trying to build right around the corner from or showing the the lack of resources in the neighborhood the the lack of attention the the struggles that a lot of people face and having that come out and having like a story of triumph and perseverance come out uh around the same time i thought it would speak to people especially the people in chicago with the most amount of power you know in these situations i thought it would be even if they end up building that shit it'll still be like a small victory it's a dope film i guess yeah it was good 100 percent good so does this mean that you'll be doing more executive producing and more acting oh yes Oh yeah. No, I, 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 I uh, the EPing thing. I'm telling you, yo, it's so easy. Any of you guys <laughs> could be an executive producer. Okay, okay. It, it costs you nothing. <laughs> you don't need any ideas. You just to show up. Put my name on that shit, yo. <laughs> but acting, I think acting is so dope, yo. I think like finding a script or having a script find you that you that it either speaks to you in such a direct way that you feel like you're them or it's so much so the antithesis of your character that it's something that you've just always wanted to test you know when you get that when you get that and you read the piece and you're like yo i want to go out for this that's like an amazing feeling um but then on the other side of it like actually acting is super whack yo because you gotta be <laughs> you sit in a trailer all day all day you sit in a trailer it's extremely hot there's hot fruit in it. <laughs> hot fruit in there. And, and you basically pretend to be somebody on camera for three different angles for four hours at a time. You, you do a scene and you kill it. You do it the best way you can. And then they say, that was amazing. Do it again. You do it a little bit worse. And they say, okay, that was terrible. You really need to do it this way. You do it one more time. It's terrible. They say, all right, that's a wrap. Now... We're going to move the camera two inches to the left, and you're going to do the exact same thing. You do that over and over again, and they eventually make a movie. I really like the, the initial excitement that I get off of attaching myself to a project, but about four hours in, I'm usually like, I quit, you know? I quit. I'm not in this, not in this film anymore. So to be extra specific, keep it a 1,000, if someone were to come to you to ask you about uh, a reboot of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That was a great setup. <laughs> What's so funny is my mom was driving me around today and she was, she was like, and you know Jazzy Jeff said you need to play The Fresh Prince, so you know you need to play The Fresh Prince. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not playing The Fucking Fresh Prince. <laughs> I'm not gonna play The Fresh Prince. I love The Fresh Prince. I love Will Smith. I have so much respect for him. I would never do that. But you know what? I would write on that joint. Me and, my, one, me and one of my best friends, Reese Money, he, he from out west, we wrote, we wrote uh, four pieces for, for, for Saturday Night Live, and three of them actually made it to dress rehearsal. Yeah. Two of them actually made it to air. One of them was... Uh, the Steve Harvey Family Feud sketch, and pretty genius, I might say. And the other one was the Batman Thanksgiving sketch. Oh, that was good. Which, if you think about it, was a fucking one. 
But then, but then Kevin Hart, yeah, yeah. But then Kevin Hart had to try and come on two weeks later and reproduce my sketch, but with Batman as a black man in a routine police stop. Who, who at the end gets arrested for actually having cocaine? To which I say, where's the political statement? What are you saying? I give one where I say, okay, here's Batman as a regular citizen. He's a vigilante. I write all these, we put all these dope lines in it. We want to use terms like excessive force and, and, and certain cool things we have to sketch all put together and it gets whittled down and watered down, but you still get a dope piece. You still get a community upset about how this criminal justice is being enacted on them disproportionately. And you get to understand that Batman is focusing it on one specific group of people. And, and, it's, and it's not too in your face. People like it and they respond well to it. And I, my head gets gassed up because I'm like, okay, oh shit, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a writer now. And then... You then you look on TV and a couple weeks later it's Batman, but now Batman's black and Batman's getting stopped by the police. Okay, I get it. That's cool. I see where you're where you're taking this. I, he's gonna get, I guess, profiled in some way. He's not gonna get respected for being Batman because he's black. But in the end, after some questioning, Batman has cocaine on him, and the and the whole stop was was uh, was justified. But I mean, like, where do you see that in society? What about what about Philando? Like, what what you know what I'm saying? It, it's it's there's a lot of situations where police do stop black men, and it's unjustified, and they do exact their justice pre-American justice, like court of law, like we watched Law and Order and shit, like pre pre-justice. They enact their justice on us, and there's and and, the, and there's no what do they call it? Probable cause. There's no, there's no, you know, it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't seem right in every situation, but there's like that shit. I don't see it in the sketch and maybe I'm just upset and I hope I get back on SNL because I'm still trying to do the host and performance thing. I don't have a problem with K with K Hart. He knows that that's my guy and everybody, but I had to get that shit off my chest, yo. And I forgot what the question was. <laughs> Okay. Well, that was illuminating. That was very illuminating. I forgot what the question was. I'm no, so no, sorry. no. It's it's all good. No, I mean you answered the question, and then you know we talked about SNL. Is there some powder at the bottom no. of my glass, <laughs> No powder allowed. Because I'm keeping it two thousand up here. <laughs> so about about that SNL. About SNL, about SNL, when are you going to go back? How does that work exactly? They pitch you, you pitch them, it just all falls. Most of our stuff is me pitching, and a lot of that stuff doesn't end up happening, but SNL was a dream for me since I was, like I said, since I was like 10 or 11 years old. My, my, my big cousin Chris had a tape recording of, of MC Hammer on SNL, and that was my first exposure to it, like, pre-Will Ferrell, pre, like, 2000s or whenever I started really watching the show, like, my understanding of it was 
pretty much a black lens because when they have a black person on, they give them, you know, pretty good reign to make some dope stuff usually, I would say. And and I was like, this shit is amazing. And I want to be a part of it because I think I'm funny. And I think I am funny also, by the way. <laughs> I think I'm funny. I think I'll kill it on this shit. So from day one, I've seen every Kanye performance on there and I studied it and I've seen, you know, I've really watched actors from the beginning of them being on the show to really like try and follow all of all of their moves, all the movies they make afterwards. And, you know, when I first got on the show, you know, I had to do, I did a show, not a, you know, not SNL, but I did a, a show in New York and they usually, I think for, for most late night shows, for any shows on TV, they send a scout to your show to see, you know, how many, I don't know if you pack the crowd. I don't know what they're testing for, but they send somebody to your show to check out if it's popping. And, uh, and they was like, yeah, you can be on the show. And so I did it. And I killed it. And I did, I, did, I did Sunday Candy. And it went over really well. And it was a cool point also because I was, I was in between projects. I had already released Surf. Acid Rap was old. Color and Book didn't have any singles. And they were willing to work with me on doing uh, Sunday Candy, even though it wasn't a big single. It wasn't technically by me. And... And they went with it, and we did a different version, too, than what was on the album, which was, you know, they were really accepting of that. So I, you know, ended up starting these awesome relationships with this amazing cast and really getting to see how they, you know, what their week looks like. When you're the musical guest, you really only have to be there for, you know, two days out of the whole week. When you're, like, the host, you're there every day, late at night, you know, writing, rewriting, pitching, you know, trying on wigs, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, though. Literally, they're, like, dragging you around the studio, and it's nonstop for a, a full week. Um, but all the, a lot of those people that I started with on that, the first time I did it back in, I think, 2014, maybe 2015, you know, I kept great relationships with and, you know, saw every time I came back. And it really is a cool thing to be a part of. It's, I would say it was one of my goals. And one thing that presses me sometimes, you know, I, don't, I, I got pretty thick skin, and... Niggas be trying to call me an industry plant and all types of shit. And I don't be, I don't be sounding off, yo. I don't be getting on Twitter talking crazy, yo. But some niggas was trying to say that one, one reason why they didn't trust my authenticity or they didn't believe that I could do it without the machine was because I was on Saturday Night Live. I don't know. It, I was just thinking, like, do niggas really be trying to be on SNL? Like, rappers? Like, really? Do people really be like, like, how many rappers do you know that were really on SNL? Like, I, I think that was, like, for me, it was a personal goal, you know? A lot of people that are on SNL are there because they're promoting something. They have an album that's going to drop. They have a movie that's about to come out. They have a TV show that's starting. They're about to go on tour. They have something that they're trying to sell in tandem with their SNL appearance. And they, a lot of times, those people don't even care. It, they're not pitching sketches. They're not coming to 30 Rock with five sketches written, you know? They're not, they're not pulling, they're not spending all night at the studio and all night doing pre-taping, you know. But that was me, yo. Like, I was really in it. Like, I, I loved the show since I was a kid. And so it was something that, like, since day one. I remember when I was going to, when I was going to, to, to record labels and, and taking meetings with them, and they, you know, they fuck you up. They hit you with the, so what do you want to do? Where do you see yourself? Like, Nigga, where do you see me? Tell me what I'm going to be doing. Tell me I'm going to be on SNL. But they hit you with that. They ask you what you want to do, and then you tell them as if they're, you know, 
the Grand Wizard of Oz, and they're and they're about to make all that shit happen for you. But I would tell, I told all of them today, face like I'm trying to be on SNL next year, yo. I need that right now. And a lot of them, even though they do tell a lot of lies, they'll tell you like, I don't know if that's gonna happen. You got to build this, and you got to do that, and you got to make sure that your album's about to come out, and blah blah blah. But when I went to SNL, I didn't, I didn't have a tape that was about to drop. I didn't have an album I was trying to sell. I didn't have any way to capitalize on those appearances. That was for, for, for me, you know? And I got them done. And I think that comes back to earlier talking about fulfillment and success. And I feel achieved. I feel happy. I feel like there's things that I could do better in terms of my relationship with my little cousins. I feel like I could be, maybe be a better big cousin. I feel like sometimes I could be a better father. I feel like I could, you know, stretch myself in other areas, but... In terms of like my hunger, like my hunger came from wanting to win a Grammy. They gave me three. They was like, "Don't come back." <laughs> like what? What am I? What you know? I I I feel happy. I feel fulfilled, and 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 that's a good place to be. Absolutely. You know, my last question is for you. Uh, is about Twitter, actually. I really appreciate something that you said last week. You what said uh, black women deserve better. <laughs> Ain't it the truth? So I was like, yes. You know what? I like to I like to get in my phone and get an alert and you missed this from Chance. He said, you deserve better. I was like, hell yeah, that's it. So that is the truth. We all deserve better. Um, but you are very prolific and you say a lot of things on Twitter that I would imagine many artists are counseled not to say. And you do it anyway. What makes you so fearless in that regard? My dad, you know, gotta you gotta stand on something. You gotta you gotta stand for something. Can't just be posted boasting. You see, and everybody talking about equal pay, and this actor needs to take less so that this actress can get more, and this, that, and the third. But then Monique comes out and she says, "Yo, like I'm." I, I know my worth. Fuck what she says about her worth. She just says, I know my worth. And people are like slamming her. People are like, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. Like, nigga, do you know how much woo-woo got paid? Do you know, you don't, un you, like, it's, and you know, like, let me try and formulate this stuff because then I, I don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I see how deeply embedded racism is and sexism and vice versa. And, understand that I can't really call myself free or feel like I am liberated unless black women are liberated. I can't feel like I'm, like I'm, I can't, I can't say I know my worth or that I'm, you know, I'm doing something for people if I can't understand how many double standards there are and, and in how many different dimensions they work. And they all thrive off of white supremacy, toxic masculinity, uh, patriarchy. There's a lot of different things that all, in turn, whether they immediately affect me or not, they won't allow me to be liberated. And so I can't feel like I'm doing my part or speaking for people if I'm not speaking for black women because they just getting the short end of the stick, yo, straight up. Like, and I don't, you know, obviously, I don't just mean black American women. I mean black women across the globe. Like, 
darker women, darker people, you know? I, I said that and I went on a rant about Monique and so many people whittled it down to that and made it about Monique. And I will stand and say it is about Monique. I'm with Monique. I'm rocking with you. I'm with her. Whoever said that, hashtag, I'm rocking with you. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, it's hard. Like the way that the, all the media works now, there's like a, it's, you, you could get sucked up into it. And it's like, there's so many dominant opinions and so many places where you can't really just say how you feel without somebody trying to correct you or, or tell you that you're, you know, that you're wrong or you're not thinking about everybody or you're just thinking about yourself or whatever. And I didn't want to get sucked up into that. So I feel like I'm kind of at fault because when the shit came out about Monique, I was like, you know, that shit came out a long time ago. I'm going to keep saying Monique's name. Monique, Monique, Monique. <laughs> it came out a long time ago when she first came out and made a statement about, about her Netflix deal. And I, I don't have any problem with, with Netflix, by the way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm still trying to get that Netflix money. I'm not finna boycott Netflix, cancel my girlfriend's subscription to Netflix and stop watching Netflix to boycott it. I would just say across the board, we could understand that there's some veracity to the statements being made about black women having, uh, you know, lower wages across the board, across any medium, um, than not just men, but uh, white women as well. And so when I saw that, I was just like, you know, uh, I feel this type of way about it, but there's so many memes and niggas going so crazy on Monique. I'm not going to just try and get up on my high horse right now. And then it got its second media cycle because that's the way it works. Like something happens and then they're waiting for a follow up. And so her follow up was her Breakfast Club interview. And she was so articulate and so empowered that I got a little, my chest got big off that. And I was like, she built me up for a second. And I was like, you know what? Fuck that. You know, I, I was walking around my house swinging my arms and I was like, you know what? I'm finna tweet some shit. And so I, <laughs> you know, I'm in the mirror shadow box and like, I'm finna go crazy on it. And I, and I tweeted some stuff about it. And people got mad. And I said, you know what? Nigga, I'm gonna say another thing. And I said another thing. And I said, you know what, nigga? Black women, you deserve better. And then people went nuts. They went crazy on Twitter. They said, you know what? All women deserve better, nigga. <laughs> Asterisk, women deserve better. Take the black out that joint. And I said, no. You got, you must have already seen it. I said, no. <laughs> I said, no. And I'm gonna stand on that joint and I'm, I don't know why I'm getting so excited. I swear there's some powder in my water, yo. <laughs> That's the end of my, that's the end of my answer. No. <laughs> okay. So now I believe is the time where we go to the audience for a handful of questions. All right, sir. All right, so last year you got into a disagreement with the governor over funding for CPS, and I was curious if you would be willing to endorse any of the Democratic candidates in the primary before it comes up uh, for election. That's a great question. My answer to that is, they got to schedule a meeting with me, yo. Tell me what you really about, yo. I, I, I said this before, and I think this across the board. I think a lot of our new leaders 
post 2020 uh, are going to be running independent. I know that independents never win, you know, but I think that's I think that's the way it's headed because there's so many very specific issues that can't get dealt with on a party across the board level. And they just have to, there just has to be some superheroes. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of superheroes, especially out of Chicago. They're going to come out of nowhere and they're going to be like, this is what it is. And this is what I'm running on. And you can ask me what my policy is on this and I'll tell you, but really this is what I'm going for. And we'll be able to say, you know what, you're right. And so when somebody comes to me and sets up a meeting and says, this is what I'm about. And I can ask them, well, how do you feel about this? And they say, well, this is what I'm about. You know, but probably not. Also, at the same end of the day, I'm not trying to be a politician. I'm not trying to endorse anybody. But if somebody comes with that, with that solid fact, I'm rocking with them. Okay. So I was at MCD2. It was thank you the best day of my whole life. Um, and I was just wondering what's coming of that. What's happening? All right. So when you say MCD2, you mean the filming or you mean the out in the park thing there's like so there's there's a there was a mcd yeah there was a mcd there was a mcw and a mcw2 and then there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff the what would, could you describe the event that you went to <laughs> i'm sorry there's a lot of acronyms and stuff. <laughs> sure well i had to put my phone in a case where i couldn't access it there was a lot of cameras Five stages. Okay. We sang together. Yeah. It was a magical moment. I think we connected eyes. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. I remember you now. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so there's MCW2. That was Magnificent Coloring World 2. Magnificent Coloring World 1 was we, we did a, a pop-up uh, art installation slash listening party at the uh, Goose Island Brewery. And... Okay, we have some people that, were, that made into that. Small groups, but some people made it. Uh, and we bust a bunch of kids to this immersive space with all this, like, you know, art and interactive stuff and, like, slides and shit like that. And then uh, and we played the album front to back and did it for three sessions. So MCW2 was an idea I had in New Zealand. We talk about an idea and executing it really fast. I had an idea really fast um, where I designed this the stage layout is so dope. So it was five stages, and if you can imagine them across from you in a semicircle, so kind of surrounding you, and you're on like these rafters, like bleachers that that stretch from one long end of of a studio. I don't know if any, any of you guys have ever been in a studio warehouse, like in like a like where they film like a movie, like a huge studio warehouse. So all the way from one end to the other, there's these bleachers, and you get filed in to a to a dark studio room. It's kind of foggy in there. And you're on these bleachers. Um, and across from you is a semicircle of gigantic stages, five stages across from you. And basically, I created a theme for each stage. There was a, a main stage which had, like, lights and everything, you know, like a regular show, like a, like LEDs and shit behind me. And then the stage next to me is the choral stage, and there's a choir, and like a, but like a 50-person choir. And then, then there's another stage which is the theatrical stage. And there's these different backdrops that change turns. I'm giving away too much of it, actually. But imagine five stages. Imagine a concert. Imagine filming it. Imagine miking up 5,000 fans. 
to sing along with you. I, I made this thing. I made this thing and I asked my team to help me get it done and they made it. They got it done. Uh, shout out to Colleen. That's my number one over there. She, she back there. But got it done and, uh, and we filmed it. And then the plan was to sell it to Netflix. So I'm hoping that you understand that I was saying I will not boycott my ex's account. But yeah, we made a movie. I don't know what's going to happen to it. I don't know what's going to happen to it. Okay, so <laughs> I was wondering, do you have any plans to write any more grant proposals? And will you be asking for help to do it? Because that's literally what I do for a living, and I take a leave of absence to do it for you. So... <laughs> Yeah. So the answer is yes. And I can make sure that you get somebody's information. That would be amazing. Before we leave. But no more, no more job interviews. <laughs> All right. That was one. She got the job, so. Is it me? Okay. Hello. Hi. So um, we know that a lot of your philanthropy is centric to Chicago. But I'm wondering, like, in the future, do you wish to branch out? Like, we talk about how black women across the globe are at a disadvantage. Do you one day hope to, like, expand it internationally? Or do you want to keep it centric to Chicago? Both are valid. You mean, like, social work specifically? Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, social works right now is a Chicago-centric, uh, like, you know, avenue to, to do philanthropy. And uh, our mission statement says that we work in youth education and, and civic engagement. But... If you look at our projects, we've broke the law and helped more people than that. But we, uh, I don't know why I said I broke the law on camera. That's so stupid. <laughs> we didn't break the law, obviously. We just helped a bunch of people. And, uh, shit. And we, uh, but we do, we do want to do, do more, uh, more stuff. So we, we uh, China just recently opened back up. Uh, they, they had closed down. They, they stopped doing tax-exempt organizations for a second. They stopped doing nonprofit work. So they just reopened that. So we're trying to work with them. Um, we're going uh, to Africa in April to, uh, to try and get it busting over there. Uh, and, yeah, I definitely want to expand. It's, there's so much work to do. Um, in terms of specifically speaking on women's rights, I don't know if that's my, if that's for me to do. But I'm definitely, I, uh, I want to be, uh, uh, to lend my support and, and uh, man, it's so hard to, to really speak on that part. But yeah, specifically social works, I definitely want to expand. I think we got to start another one. I think that's how it works. I don't know. Hi. Hey. <laughs> okay, it's not really a question. I've been trying to give you my save the date for my wedding for like five months. Okay. <laughs> Would you mind if I gave it to you? Sure, let's do it after, afterwards. I'll come grab <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. Okay, you want to go? Let's go to the back. What about the guy with the hat on? I see you. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say that Acid Rap was the soundtrack to my summer, any summer when I was a kid. And uh, Thanks, that's the man. reason why I started making beats. So thank you for that. How old are you? Uh, I'm 20. Okay. 20, yeah. Um, I'm not that much older than not you. Not much older. Just okay, to wait, wait. make sure that we... <laughs> When you were a kid, I was also a kid at the same time. <laughs> My question is, though, what is the most significant creative insight you learned from working with Kanye West? Ooh. Hmm. So, uh, 
the immediate answer that I would give is one that I've given before. He showed me how to multitask and how to use the studio as more than just a recording space. Uh, I've said before, I went to, when he was working on Life of Pablo, that was the first time I'd ever gotten to be around him. And not first time I got to be around him, but the first time I got to be around him in music and not like at some type of event or some shit. And so we were like in our, you know, in our space. And he really believed in me and would do a lot of cool rants to people about how I was the Steph Curry of rap and really, really gassed me up and hyped me up in front of company all the time. And that was like one of the coolest things. I just hang out there, spend hours and hours there. And he would fall asleep in the studio and take his naps and I'd still be sitting up going through songs. And one thing that I got from being at the studio and just being able to kind of like be under his wing and walk around was, I've said this before, is what Kanye does instead of renting out a room at a studio is he rents the whole studio. And usually studios, you know, professional studios, multiple floors, multiple rooms, there's an outside area like a terrace or something. And he would fill up these rooms with people working on different projects. So he was the first, the reason why I use my, I won't say which studio, but I use my studio as an office is from watching him do the same thing. I remember, you know, there'd be three rooms with people working on three different songs from the same album, but then also in another room with just, you know, pictures and samples of different materials all over the walls in one room where he was working on one clothing line. And then a room that literally mirrored that in another room, but just a different clothing line that he had thought of. And when you went to the back to the terrace, there were all these people on laptops. I don't know what they were working on. All, all of them. But one lady back there was, uh, was, was, a, was a producer on the Lego movie, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but it's one of the best movies of all time. You've seen it before, I guess. Yeah, great film. And then she was having a conversation with a dude who was, get this, a magician. <laughs> and they were having a conversation on how to make Kanye West disappear at a show. <laughs> so, I, but I, I took that information. I took that to, to, straight to the heart and to the mind. And now, I, a lot of times, anybody, I don't know how many people you'll meet that tell you that they had a meeting with me, but my meetings are at the studio. And when I do, when I film stuff for, you know, a press or for, you know, uh, I don't know, an inspirational video or shit like that, I do it at my studio. And, I, you know, all the social works meetings are at the studio. And we kind of keep everything happening in one space. So, like, the creative energy stays there. And I can also, instead of getting mad at a song and, like, walking out into the lobby to just, you know, smoke a cigarette or do, I could walk out and go brainstorm with somebody on something else I'm working on. Awesome, thank you. Chance, one of the most powerful things that I saw on the internet was when you received your Grammys at your home and your daughter was putting them online, you know, uh, and then you just got really emotional. What were, what were you thinking then when that was happening and uh, why did you get so emotional? Woo! I just got touched right now, yo. Well, first of all, I'm a thug. I never cry. <laughs> this was actually the first time I had cried in years. And really, though. And I was like, man, I don't know. So first of all, that was going back to my last question. That was not at my home. That was at my studio. And I had been uh, waiting on these Grammys for so long. 
And everybody else had got their Grammys from the Grammys. Like all my friends or anybody that knew them won the Grammys got them mailed, I would guess like a month or two after. I posted my Grammys up, I think like in August or September online because that's the day that I got them. And uh, the holdup was because I didn't, I'm weird. I don't be liking to like sign stuff. So I don't know. I have a weird thing about anything that somebody's like, all right, everything's in order. You just need to sign right here. I'm like, mm, wait, nigga. <laughs> so I... So I, so I was like, I, I held off on getting the Grammys for a long time for no reason. I read it and it was nothing. But I got, <laughs> I, I got the Grammys finally in the mail. And my mom, who for a long time was my dedicated nanny, she quit her amazing job to come be my nanny full time. And, and, and you know, I, I really appreciate her for just doing that. But I called her up. I was like, I got my Grammys. I want you to be here when I open them because I hadn't taken them out of the package yet. So my mom had my daughter with her and she came over to the studio. And I don't know, man. I, like I said, when they give you the Grammys, they give you a placeholder. They, they don't, the presenter doesn't know who they're going to give it to. They read a name. That person has the moment of their life, especially if it's the first time they've ever been there. And you hold it and you think about everything that led up to that moment and how you'll never be Grammy-less again. And, <laughs> and then you walk off the stage and you're looking at it and somebody snatches it out of your hand because it's not yours and there's no name on it. And so I lived like that for so long. And I really think, like I said, it was such a big moment for me and such a, such a thing that I really, like I really purposely didn't sign for so long and kept saying no to amounts of money that I knew I wouldn't see for a long time because I just thought it would be cool for somebody to say I got the Grammy without a without a label, you know? I just thought I just thought it would be dope for somebody to say that. And and I I I got him and I'm holding a Grammy that probably weighs around I would say close to like set between seven and 10 pounds. It's a pretty heavy thing in one hand. And I, my daughter, who's about 30 pounds in the other hand, she's, yeah, her mom's tall. And she, <laughs> and, but feeling that moment of like, like my daughter doesn't know what a Grammy is. She doesn't give a fuck, like <laughs> could care less. But she could, she could feel that I was happy and she was hugging me and she was congratulating me. And I was thinking about all the nights that I slept in the studio that I could have been with my baby, you know? And how much pressure I had put on myself to get this done, to get this accomplished. And now, months and months after I've won it, fuck, it, fuck me winning it, but the voting process is done. You know, they knew I was going to win before I knew. And... To put it in real perspective, God knew I was going to win it before I did. So I had been had it. I had it since I was born. And I put so much time and so much effort into it to really just stand there as a scale for a moment and feel the weight of my daughter and how much more important that was, was, was it broke me down for a second. I'm like, yo, cut off the camera, yo, because I'm about to start crying. <laughs> And yeah, that's, but that's what, if, if that's the best way to encapsulate what was going on, like, I think, I think it was meant for me to get three at one time. Cause if I had one, I 
probably be too thirsty for more. But I got it in abundance so that I could see it's worth it. it. It was dope. All of the things that happened to make that happen were awesome. But I got them like that so that I could see that there were multiple of them. There's no more. There's no more Kinsleys. You know what I'm saying? So that's it. <laughs> shit getting deep. I got chills. So we're going to take our last person. Hello. Uh, my name is Ebony Edwards Carr, and I'm a student at Hare Washington College. And I'm what's considered a non-traditional student, which means that I'm over 25 years of age. I'm actually 42. And um, I decided to go back to school after dropping out 20 years ago because my son was murdered in uh, 2014, and he had just turned 18. And I did that in his honor because the reason that I dropped out 20 years ago was because I was expecting him. I firmly believe that college is for everyone who aspires to it. And I believe that free college should be offered for everyone. I've been blessed to get this opportunity because of a grant with Chicago um, Housing Authority. And I know Chicago Public Schools has the Chicago Scholars Program for CPS students, um, meaning that if you have a B average, you can get a free college education through the city colleges of Chicago. I know I read that you were once a student at Harold Washington College yeah. as well. And so my question is, what would you say to not only your younger self, but also the aspiring college students at Chicago Public Schools? And what would you say to the city colleges and CPS to make the city colleges of Chicago not necessarily a second choice, but a first choice? Because it is an opportunity to have a free college education. Well, for one, I would tell myself, I think I could tell myself, uh, you can do it all. I, w I went to Harold Washington for exactly one day. <laughs> I know I'm on the website listed as an alumni. I thought alumni meant that you graduated. Apparently it doesn't. It just meant that you signed up. But... But I, I, I would tell myself straight up, I would say you can do it all because there's a lot of tools that I don't have, you know? I'm lucky enough to, I went to a really good grade school, went to Mark T. Skinner School. Uh, I went to a, to, a, to a really good high school, Jones College Prep. I, I gave up though because I, my heart wasn't really in it. And... Parts of me felt like I wasn't good enough to be in college. And other parts of me felt like I was too good to be at City College. And I think the combination of the fear of, like, I wasn't living to my full potential and then also that I could be graded on my intelligence and not necessarily live up to whatever standards I thought that I was at or, you know, 
stay on top of my work like I believe I could. Um, I quit. I quit like literally I went to, I didn't make it through a full day. That was a lie earlier. I went to two of three classes. It was also not, it wasn't set up right for me. I didn't, I registered too late and I didn't get to have any gen eds. I had like a class called reading, but it wasn't an English credit. It was just, they had books in there. <laughs> I had a lot of classes that were not, that were not conducive to what I was trying to do. So I quit. But if I could go back and fix something, it would be my understanding of the music business. I learned a lot and I'm, I ain't no dummy, but it's, I, I don't know it all, you know? I didn't learn it in a way where it was beneficial to, like, actual education. Like, I learned it in, like, through people's behavior, you know, through word of mouth, through, like, picking up on small things. And that's how us as a people learn a lot of things because a lot of shit isn't accessible for us. But that's not the best way to learn, you know? And so, you know, one thing is I wish I did understand business. I wish I did have better investments at this age. Like, I made a lot of money, and I'm not... I don't have no chains. Like, I haven't spent my money in dumb ways, but I don't have it necessarily working for me how I probably would if I went to school. And I am learning a lot more about international schooling and international, you know, healthcare and international, like, a lot of, like, becoming more aware of, like, our counterparts in the world and how shit works for different people. And learning about universal preschool is, like, the big thing that I'm, like, becoming a proponent of and being like this is you know i think there's a lot of things that are owed to us as citizens in a nation like this especially people that look like us and it's in it and we don't have it and there's money for it and we all we all pay taxes and so yeah i would say to the city of of chicago for one the first thing that i thought of when you started talking is the nonprofit thing is hard and it's real, you know. I really had to apply for that shit and really had to like all the the work that goes into it. And anybody could do it, actually. Anybody could start a nonprofit if they want to, but it is still hard. I don't know how many people raise your hand if you have a nonprofit. We got at least three people. Can we clap their hands? It's grueling work. And it's and it's hard waiting on an approval from the government on whether or not you can help people. But we did it in a certain way, and I remember one of the things that we had to figure out was what kind of tax-exempt organization we were going to be and if we would be able to be something like a foundation where they give out scholarships. And so that's something that I'm actually, as soon as you started talking, we're going to look into that when we leave here and figure out how we can. Because social work's, you know, we, I, I would love to be in a position to do that and, and, and to help people. I think higher education is the answer. And yeah, as you guys could tell also throughout this thing, I kind of answer questions by rambling and it's not that I don't know the answer. It's more that I, there's multiple answers to all these questions and I, I'm trying to form them as, can I get one more question before we get out of here? Just Uno Mas, this has been a healing experience for me, <laughs> as y'all could tell.
Hello. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Chance. Um, hey. My name's Rosita Cox. I'm a reporter with The Tribe, um, which is hey. a Black-owned media company. We're working to um, reshape the Black narrative. And you guys touched briefly on it, but those votes last week, a couple of months ago, um, with closing the schools and the COP Academy, they, they're voting to secure the land. What are your thoughts? Tell me how that makes you feel emotionally and how will you continue to use your voice to combat these issues in Chicago? Well... I feel cheated. I feel angry. I feel vengeful. Feel like they're people that aren't nameless. You know, you you grow up feeling like, you know, you're fighting against the man or like you're fighting against this like faceless entity of like people that are out to get you. But these people have names. You know what I'm saying? And like Ram is on that. Like, that's just, like, what it is. And there's no way to hide it. This is, I think, the third group closing of schools since 2013. And we did work with, with some of the schools. I think Harlan was one of the schools, Team Inglewood and TA. Um, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, I think, uh, the truth is all these schools have, like, like, there's, like, a few similarities between them, right? And it's not like we have to, like, dance around it, like, I'm tired of like trying to just rock with Democrats because I'm supposed to be a Democrat. I'm tired of like trying to support people just because they rock with the same people as me. Like there's nobody coming out and saying, I see the inequality. I see the inequities. I see the unfairness. I see, you know, uh, the violations of, of, of our city. I see a, a, a scathing Department of Justice review on our police department, the same one that the same one that murdered Fred Hampton, I'm saying, I'm seeing that this is a fucked up system and this is me inserting myself into it to change it all. I know it's not me. And I'll say it, I'm cool with that. I don't, I don't want to be the one, but I want to stand behind whoever it is and whoever has that voice. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily start on that level. It starts on an aldermanic level. It starts on the all ages shit. It starts on the my my neighborhood, my ward, my block type shit. It starts with 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 block club presidents. It starts with starting a block club. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, but all those levels are accessible. You know, I'm I'm here. Like I'm posted. Like I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna live in Chicago till the day I die. And I I got. And I'm going I'm to leave every once in a while. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do some tours so I could get that bag. And then I'm going to lobby for y'all. If y'all need the support, I'm going to make it happen. Um, and I think that was like, I think this was a good-ass interview. I think I did it. I think, I think we're done. This has been Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago that explore new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand. Sell more stuff. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Elia Einhorn and Marco Shizumi, and engineered by Marco Shizumi with Rich Norwood. Inside Out's executive producer is Seth Dodson. Till next time.